welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Each year, the prestigious Beverly Alt Scholarship provides senior fellows at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre in Sydney an opportunity to enrich their educational and career training activities. This fellowship honours the life of Beverly Alt and the compassionate care she received at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. As such, our very own Dr. Josh Hurwitz abandoned me to go gallivanting in the United States of America. He was able to attend the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in Texas, as well as engage with some of the brightest minds in cancer care and research at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Meanwhile, I was left to freeze in one of the coldest Australian summers on records. No, I'm not bitter. Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, supported by the Kinghorn Cancer Centre and the Beverly Alt Scholarship, is incredibly honoured to present a series of interviews with specialists who have influenced the course of medical oncology on both a global and personal scale, providing the promise of innovative, personalised medicine. In this episode, Josh interviewed Professor Eric Weiner, an alumnus of Yale University School of Medicine and more recently the director of Yale Cancer Centre. Professor Weiner has been at the forefront of cancer research for over three and a half decades. He has been a prolific researcher and has held prestigious positions, including Chief of Breast Oncology Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and Chair of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. It was a true privilege for Professor Weiner to donate some of his time and wisdom to appear on our podcast. This interview was recorded live in front of a captive audience in Sydney. My name is Josh. I am the, I guess, the fellow for Elgin, and he's also my mentor, so it's kind of a great opportunity having, you know, several, lots of mentors in the room. Um, grandchild. 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 Yes, I'm the grandchild. I run this educational podcast. We have people in 110 countries. It's growing a fair bit. My little plug with Gilead, if you uh, want to give me an education grant, I'm open to having that conversation. Uh, but this is about Eric. So... Eric, thank you so much for coming tonight. My pleasure. So, Eric, the first question, and I have 1,000 for you, and we only have 20 minutes. Could you tell me a little bit about your childhood and how your diagnosis of haemophilia essentially impacted your worldviews and passions? Oh, gosh. You know, so, um, you know, many of you may have heard my rather long story, but... um, I am 66 years old and was born in 1956. And about a year after I was born, uh, it turned out, not terribly surprisingly, that I had hemophilia, uh, factor VIII deficiency. My mother's father had hemophilia and had died several years earlier. And his two brothers had had hemophilia and died during their childhood. And... um, I think to put it simply, I didn't have a very normal early childhood. I spent much of my life in and out of Boston Children's Hospital, either dealing with a bleeding episode of some sort, typically in a joint, um, or recovering from it. Um, And it was, I would say, a revolving door of clinic visits and hospitalizations. But the truth is, I actually thought it was pretty normal. Um, My parents later told me that they said, you know, some kids have blue eyes and some kids have brown eyes and some kids have hemophilia and some kids don't. And I don't know that they ever actually said that to me. 
Um, but I think that was really the philosophy that they took. And it pretty much worked for me because I thought that I was like anybody else, um, other than the fact that I used to have to deal with the fact that I had splints on my elbows and ankles much of the time because I was always either having a bleed or recovering from a bleed. And this is back in the time pre-factor eight concentrates when there wasn't a whole lot you could do until something hurt enough that you went to the hospital and you got some fresh frozen plasma and maybe it would get better. But, you know, it was, it was okay. Fascinating. <laughs> and the exact answer I wanted him to give, so thank you. <laughs> Moving on to our next question. So your, your formative years were generally pretty, I guess, benign, well tolerated, you enjoyed your time. And if we move forward, what, what led you to pursue a career in medicine after your early undergraduate education in Eastern European studies? I did my homework. Yeah. So, um, and I have to say one more thing, which is that as I was preparing to give my ASCO presidential address when I talked about my experience having an illness and how that should impact on, the, on or what I had learned from that in terms of lessons for patient care, I actually looked at a bunch of photographs of myself with my family when I was a little kid, and I'm smiling in all of them. I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite dramatic. You know, I'm there with splints on my arms and in a wheelchair and this or that, and I'm just smiling away. Um, so why did I become a doctor? I was, I was totally immersed in the medical field as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old. And factor eight concentrates came out when I was about 12. I immediately, as a 12 or 13-year-old, went from being a pretty sick kid to being a pretty normal kid, albeit one who had to stick a needle in his vein every other day. Um, but I used to, you know, move around Children's Hospital in Boston like I was a doctor. I mean, or so I thought. <laughs> um, but I'd go up to the blood bank, and before there was factor eight, there was cryoprecipitate. I'd bomb my own cryo and draw it up and, you know, do all of this as like an 11-year-old or 12-year-old. Um, so it sort of made sense that I wanted to be a doctor. And... It wasn't so much that I felt this need to give back, it was just that this is what I knew. Except, I was a pretty bad science student in high school, and when I went off to college, I thought, like, why are you, why are you torturing yourself with all this science? Why don't you study something you, you're really interested in? So I majored in history and Russian studies, and then only to discover that I still really wanted to be a doctor. It was this really emotional tug. And in 1979, 1980, I was a first-year medical student. Which brings me to my next question. Medical <laughs> studies in the US can be quite tough. I think us in Australia have it relatively easy these days. How did you manage these complex health issues? I know you had fact eight, but there were still hospital admissions and presentations, and I'm assuming you had to go and have appointments. How did you manage all of these things? Yeah, I mean, I totally managed my hemophilia. There was no issue. I didn't have bleeds. I went and got my own factor eight, you know, from Children's Hospital once a month. I just kept a supply. 
uh, that wasn't the issue. The issue really was that everything changed in you know, 1979, 1980, 1981. And you know, as people know, Virtually everybody with hemophilia developed hepatitis C and HIV. And in 1979, right before I started medical school, I was traveling in England with my then girlfriend, and I felt just exhausted all summer. I couldn't figure out why I felt so terrible. And in retrospect, that almost certainly was my primary HIV infection. And what unfolded over the next several years was just this sort of you know, horrific set of challenges. Although I don't, I don't think I ever quite perceived it that way. But in retrospect, it was, it was a little tough. So in 1982, the first report of three boys or men with hemophilia with HIV, except it wasn't called HIV then, came out in the CDC's weekly publication. And the minute I saw that, I said, shit. Um, nobody says they know how this, this, this illness is transmitted. It's got to be a virus, and we're all infected. Now, I will tell you that I still, you know, pursued a little magical thinking. And for the next couple of years, I actually avoided factor eight. I took cryoprecipitate. Cryoprecipitate is a single donor product. Unlike factor eight, which is infusing yourself with 10,000, the blood from 10,000 people at the same time. And on the very small chance I wasn't already infected, I moved to the very inconvenient uh, approach of using frozen cryoprecipitate and having to thaw it every time I needed to take it. But, um, you know, that, that obviously was not the issue. <laughs> uh, you know, I had already been infected. Um, and you know, initially, um, I'm sorry if I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sort of this keep is great. talking. This is what I want. Um, so um, initially, you know, my thinking was, this is okay. You know, people say like, you know, one in a hundred people are going to get sick, so I can deal with that. And I was in, you know, finishing medical school, and then I was an intern, and I took care of people with AIDS, and I took care of occasional people with hemophilia and AIDS. And, you know, I relied upon a pretty healthy amount of, uh, of, of you know, my defense mechanisms were up uh, and denial. Um, and I thought that was probably going to be, everything would probably be okay. And then people started talking about how everybody was going to get sick, and that was a little more challenging. But still, you know, I was trying to pursue a pretty normal life. I got married the day after my internship. Um, both my wife, Nancy, and I knew that, you know, there was this challenge, but we both sort of accepted it. And then um, there was this funny experience I had, which I think in many ways really um, was had a bigger impact on me than I realized at the moment. So I went to see my dentist in 1985. And, and so I walked into the dentist's office for a root canal, and I was having all this pain, and I like need, needed the root canal. And he walks in, and he says, I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave. And I, I sort of said, what? And he informed me at that moment that uh, his office staff wouldn't let him take care of me. 
And at that point, I hadn't even been tested for HIV, but they knew I had hemophilia. And they had read the reports of people with hemophilia having AIDS. And so um, I was uh, denied medical care. And I think that that made me feel, I know it made me feel angry. It also made me feel really shameful, like I had done something wrong. And I can't tell you how thankful I was when I found a dentist who would actually take care of my two root canals within a couple of weeks. And there was, I think, literally one dentist in the city of New Haven who, who was willing to see me. And um, I think that's, that has affected me for a long, long time. I, since I've been back in New Haven over the past two years, you know, I've looked him up. I haven't quite gone over to his office yet. But I, I, I actually, like, if, if, if there's rage in me towards anyone, that's where the rage is. <laughs> but in any case, look, the, the, the fact of the matter is, I obviously have survived a lot. You know, we left fellowship, uh, we, we, we moved from New Haven to North Carolina so that I could do a fellowship and my wife could go to graduate school. We felt like we were living on borrowed time. We very rapidly had three children. After the first two, first one was born before there was really a whole lot of concern about transmission. The second was, was born with a great deal of thought and caution. And the third was born using all sorts of complex reproductive techniques that who knows if they did any good, with all of our friends saying we were out of our minds to have a third child. I mean, totally out of our minds. You know, my, my, our closest friends told my wife that, that you know, she basically should not have a third child given the fact that she was going to be a single mother. But, you know, that, that, that uh, sort of all worked out. Um, we were lucky. And, you know, I don't need to detail all the um, specific experiences, but treatment for HIV came out and I ultimately, you know, went on effective treatment. Somewhat ironically, I, although I was actually cured of hep C from a combination of two courses of, of interferon and ribavirin, which I would not recommend to any of you, like one of the most miserable experiences one could ever experience, Erica probably remembers when I was on my first course of interferon and when the only thing I could eat in clinic was smoothies because I had grade three mucositis the whole time. But then uh, it, what happened was that I actually um, uh, had a huge varicell bleed, which had nothing to do with hepatitis C in retrospect and had everything to do with the fact that I was on a drug called DDI many years ago which causes nodular regenerative hyperplasia, which I unfortunately had. And um, spent four years, which Erica probably also remembers, right before LGN arrived, having chronic GI bleeding. Never a good thing for a person with a bleeding disorder to have chronic GI bleeding. I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and I had, you know, really intractable portal hypertension and in spite of having varices banded and everything else, I kept bleeding. And, uh, and then finally had a distal splenal renal shunt now 14 years ago and that sort of fixed everything. So um, here I am, sort of a medical uh, oddity. I, I don't really think of it as a miracle, but a, an oddity. 
But I think the real question, can I keep talking? Do we have enough time? Yeah, okay. I think the real question, and I'm sorry for those of you who are at my ASCO talk because you're going to hear this again. I think the real question is, what about my experience informs how I take care of patients, how I think about patient care, and the kinds of lessons that I think it, it, it implies for all of us? And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to march through the five points I made in my ASCO talk, but I'm going to do my best to hit on a few of them. So first, I think we all have to remember always that when you're healthy, it doesn't really matter who your doctor is. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny sliver of that big pie that you call your quality of life. But when you're sick, whether you have breast cancer, whether you have lung cancer, whether you have end-stage heart failure, the piece of your quality of life that is affected by the relationship that you have with your healthcare team is huge. So don't for a minute forget how much impact you can have on people. And it really, really matters. That's one. Oh God, I'm gonna block on all the others. Let's, uh, let's see. Second, stigma really is bad. And it's bad enough to have an illness, but to have an illness, and I didn't bring this out earlier, but one of the challenges in our young married life was that we had three little children. Having HIV was the equivalent of having like the plague, and we couldn't tell anybody. I mean, if we, we lived in North Carolina, not the most progressive state in the country, but even if we lived in Massachusetts, it wouldn't have mattered because we didn't think anybody would invite our kids over to play if, if in fact, they knew that their father had HIV. And having an illness that's associated with stigma just makes it that much harder. And the example I used at ASCO, and I'll just use again today, is the person who smokes cigarettes and gets lung cancer. Should that person receive any less empathy from us than anybody else? Should somebody who's you know, massively overweight and is at increased risk, as we all know, for 13 cancers, should that person in any way get less empathy when they develop cancer or when they're more likely to die of cancer and they die of cancer? And so stigma is just, you know, really, really, really a, a, a challenge. I think that the whole piece of partnering with patients is critical not only to the patient, but for all of us. And I think that one of the things that I have always felt has has insulated me personally from burnout is having these kinds of partnerships with patients. And I don't pretend to think that it's always easy and I don't pretend to think that when you have seven minutes to see a patient, as I heard someone say something about seven minutes earlier, that it's easy to form that partnership. I, I was once um, many years ago talking to a doctor in China who told me that he saw a hundred women with breast cancer in the morning and he was having challenges with shared decision-making. And I thought to myself, shared decision-making, like how do you even say hello? Like you, you can't 
possibly, possibly um, do that. In any case, I, I think that there, there's, there's uh, I'm, I'm missing the other couple of two or three lessons that I, I mentioned in my ASCO talk. I actually thought tonight, I told Elgin that I was supposed to give a talk, not be interviewed. And so I didn't, I didn't write down any notes. I put together slides and they're not here in my head at the moment, especially having arrived this morning. You know, I, I will tell you, I feel like the luckiest guy in the face of the earth. And um, I have gotten, I've had the, in many ways, privilege of having a, a different experience than many people, but others, everybody's got something. Oh, other big point. Everybody's got something. So don't for a second think that I am saying that to be an effective partner with patients, to be the best doctor you can be, that you have to have a lived experience as a patient. Because I would actually argue that all of you have a lived experience of something, um, of something that has not always been easy. You know, whether it's that your parents, you know, separated when you were a young kid, whether it's that your mother died when you were young, whether it's something else, you don't have to have that experience. You just have to know how to transfer whatever experience you've had to what's going on in that room. And I think that that's really, really important. I, I, I don't pretend to have any special gift. I just think that with, the, with what I've been through, it's a little easier to tap into it than, than some people. But I think we can all, all tap into it. But anyway, I really seriously do feel like I'm a super fortunate guy. Um, I have um, three grown, awesome kids. They are awesome because they have an incredible mother, not because their father was always so attentive. And as I said at ASCO, they would all say, yeah, dad's okay, but mom's the real hero. Um, and, um, and they're right. But uh, in any case, I'm happy to answer anything you have for me. I, um, I, I'm, I am not somebody who like started this, started into my career with a plan of where I was going. I just kept falling into one thing after another. And I would actually say that um, my coping mechanism, and we all have different coping mechanisms, and we can't expect our patients to have the same coping mechanisms we have. Mine is just to like, keep putting one foot in front of the other because I'm afraid that if I don't, I like, will fall down or something. Anyway, that's it. Before we open to the room for any questions, I have one final question. Yeah, yeah. Also, Erica was right. I just had to give you three questions and you just spoke for 20 minutes, so wonderful. Thank you for that. If you could give your younger self some advice, personal, professional, anything else, what would that be? What pieces of wisdom might you share? So I don't know that this has anything to do with my, you know, assorted health experiences. But in a curious way, or maybe you'll find it curious, because I know I appear reasonably confident and self-assured and what have you, and this relates to a conversation we were that, that I was having with Elgin and, and Erica earlier. 
I don't know that I've ever felt as comfortable with in my own skin with being me as I would like to. And I would tell myself that trying to get there is the most important thing you can do. And I don't think I realized that when I was younger. So that that's, and I think that's partially related to sort of a lot of the insecurities that I developed as a result of having to deal with, with, with illness as a young kid. But not all. Um, but that, that's the advice I give myself. Some sage words of wisdom. Does anyone have some questions for that? Feel free. So I can't resist. I'd like to put you on the spot a little bit. Feel free. You know, free. that moment when you went to the dentist and you didn't get your root canal, and you made a little mental note that one day, 30 years later, you're going to check whether that guy is still alive. You made another choice. You also made a choice that you were not going to have a, a scene in the waiting room. You've made a sort of active choice to sort of to live your life a particular way to the point that one day in Sydney you could say, I'm the luckiest man in the world. What made you make that choice? What was it that you had? What was it that you knew? What's, what was the magic ingredient that got you to make that choice as opposed to throwing the brick through the wall? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that as you talk about that, I tear up because um, I don't think I necessarily realized at the time how, how important an experience that was for me. Um, I think I was given um, a real advantage at a very early age. And that advantage was that I never knew what a lot of people called normal. You know, I grew up with a problem. So when I had to deal with HIV, when I had to deal with GI bleeding, when I, you know, I mean, truly, when I was 20, when I was not 29, when I was 31, I didn't think I'd live to be 35. When I was 41, I didn't think I'd live to be 45. When I took the job at Dana-Farber on the second interview, I told the people I was interviewing with, I said, I think I'm good for five to 10 years. I can't make any promise beyond that. But I think I was given a gift not of, of understanding how to deal with uncertainty at a young age. And I think that that was sort of in a, in a way part of how, how I, I dealt with that. And in truth, I think I was at that moment when I was kicked out of the dentist's office, you know just where the office is, New Haven's a small city, I was actually felt more shamed than I felt enraged. I felt like, you know, like, oh, I have this illness, it's like I'm just not okay. Which is part of the whole thing about stigma, which is why it's so devastating for people. Eric, it's not connected to what you're saying currently, but I've always admired the way you have a relationship with your mentees. <laughs> and I'm curious to know, or what is your word of wisdom for all of us who are trying to mentor people? So, you know, I think that with people that you're mentoring, you just have to commit to being their total mentor. And I actually think that you have to mentor them in their career. I think you have to, you, to the extent that they're comfortable with it, 
you have to mentor them in their lives. And I think the other really key point here is that you can't make people into something they're not. And I think the key to being um, a good mentor, other than working hard at it, which is really important, I think you just can't try to force people into, in, in, into interests, into jobs that they don't belong. And I think you have to try to understand what's really right for somebody. Um, and I think you know, doing that is, is critical, which means you have to listen to people. Eric, I, I read your the transcript of your interview with CNN about the drug shortage in the US. <laughs> I mean, it's appalling that it was an insightful interview. Related to that, and we discussed this a bit with LD and Erica last night, is that the role of the pharmaceutical industry in influencing standard of care for better or worse. I'd be interested in the comments on that. Say the last part of that again, I'm sorry. I'd be interested in your comments on the role of the pharmaceutical industry in influencing standard of care practice, for better or worse. So I don't know that I've ever shared this, um, but I, but it occurs to me that I do have a fundamental distrust of the pharmaceutical industry, since it was known for at least five years before anyone developed HIV from hemophilia or with anybody with hemophilia developed HIV, that they could heat treat factor eight, eliminate hepatitis C, and it would have eliminated HIV, and that they chose not to do that because of cost, and chose to allow young boys with hemophilia to be infected with hepatitis. So, um, and which, which actually ultimately led to a class action suit that, that cost them not enough money. <laughs> So I guess I do come to this with like some amount of distrust fundamentally, in spite of the fact that I think I've had pretty productive relationships with the pharmaceutical industry over the years. I think it's a huge challenge, and I actually think that Erica's answer was really perfect. Um, and I think that we have to try to think out of the box in terms of ways in which we can, we can make it worth it worthwhile to the pharmaceutical industry to listen to the agendas that we know are important for patient care. I actually think that on some level, many of the companies really understand that targeted therapy and highly effective targeted therapy is way more important than just selling a lot of drug to the masses for a little bit of benefit. And I think that that's a message we have to continue to emphasize. Oh, I don't have a perfect answer to this. Eric, this was everything that I hoped it would be. <laughs> and I think the people at the table would probably agree. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for coming down to Australia. It's my, great to have you. My pleasure.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find links to the rest of our episodes on our website, inquisitiveonc.com. There you will also find a collection of weekly blog posts, useful resources, as well as links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. This is Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a podcast by ADC Productions.